everyone, this is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing in life, because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. That is true. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, the premier free writing magazine on the internet, featuring articles on writing and the writing life, as well as video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. You can watch my interview with Tess Gerritsen. Yes, you can. That's up there right now. Go find out all about it at authormagazine.org. And we are funded by the good people at the Pacific Northwest Writers Association, supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. Go find out about those good people at PNWA. Org. All right. Well, John Everson, Jonathan Everson, back on the show. You know, I interviewed Jonathan Everson when he released his first book, All About Lulu, a bunch of years ago. Now here it is, his eighth. He's had a book made into a movie. He's won awards. He's having a great career. It's so cool to catch up with him again. Interesting guy. We had a great conversation about um, just about the reader and the writer and storytelling. John loves stories, loves writing. Always has an interesting take. It was really great to catch up with him. If you're not familiar, he's the author of the novels Small World, All About Lulu, West of Here, The Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance, Lawn Boy, Legends of the Norse Cascade, and then most recently Again and Again, which i got to say was a great book. I, well, I liked it. I thought it was great. So anyway, John and I, we had a great conversation. Interesting man, and I'm glad I get to share it with you now. Enjoy. Well, this is a treat. I have back on the show, the first time in a long time, the one and only Jonathan Everson. John, how are you doing? Good. How are you, Bill? I think, gosh, I mean, I've maybe been on with you a couple times, but I, the first time had to be like 15 years ago or something. Like all about Lulu. Lulu. I think. Lulu. It was all about Lulu. That's right. I've, I've uh, known you since the start, my friend. Yeah, the start of well, whatever. It's I'm still kind of on start, man. Still, still all right, struggling well, up that mountain. Well, okay, so you got a new book out. Here it is again and again. I was telling John when we we're getting started how much I love this book. I loved it in the very first paragraph, Johnny. This is the truth. I did. I was just digging it. So that is one endorsement. I know you'll get others, but you got mine, and. Uh, I hope That's you're good because you know you were all right with the direct address. Some people don't like direct address. I love the direct address. I love it. I yeah, love when it. it's done well, I love it too. Oh, it's great. It has an immediacy. You got to pull it off. It's a risk. It is, but well, the voice is great. The voice of the narrator is well in my. Yeah, this is my taste. You were writing right up my alley. Uh, but we were so. This is so when we're talking now in the first, but when our audience hears it, the book will have just dropped. Again and again, book number eight, novel, published novel number eight. Um, but you claim, John, you claim that since you finished this, what, you've written three more and a screenplay. Is that did you were you lying to me? Is this true? Yeah. What's you, going on? Well, uh, three more. Uh, yeah. Uh, Last of the Californios, The Heart of Winter, The Steps, and a screenplay called Grim and Barrett. And a TV pitch deck for Lomboy. Yeah, I got to stay busy, man. I got to keep the lights on. Well, but hold on. I mean, I know the publishing cycle is a little long, but I also know it takes you a little while to write a book. You're not cranking them out quite at Harlequin pace. So explain the the the, uh, the delay between the finishing of it and the publishing of this particular book. Was it unusual? 
No, no, not at all. I mean, I publish a book about every 18 months or two years, which is good for literary fiction. Sure. That was genre fiction. You can do it more often or like romance, yeah. obviously. They want you to churn them out. Um, that's just comfortable for me. I need the money. You know, I got a family of five to feed, so I got to publish every two years, you know? But uh, I'm not hurrying. I mean, I'm just, I'm workhorse. So when you think about it, you know, I work every, you know, I never take long periods of time off. And, you know, at this point, after having written like 19 books or something, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at getting out of my own way and not procrastinating and knowing how to, you know, not hit the wall and always getting work done. And so, you know, I mean, God, if you, if you, if you write a thousand words a day, five days a week, you know, you're looking at 250,000 words a year. I mean, that's, you know, that's yep. three novels. So, you know, that's how, but you know, I take a lot of time and go, I write about 15 drafts, but I think the key is that I'm just, you know, I'm not lazy. No, no. I mean, I just, you're not going to be accused of being lazy, John. That's not going to happen. No, well, I mean, I got that workman, like I'm a working class kid. So it's just like, you know, pack my lunch pail and go to work. Don't complain about, you know, I, I'm not one to like, you know, I'm not very precious about the whole thing. It's like, right. uh, you know, building a, you know, brick outhouse. It's right. not, you know, it's not all about inspiration for me. If I'm not inspired, believe me, I'm not inspired like, you know, three out of five days, but like, you just got to trust the process. And after a couple hours of getting out of your own way, you're right back on the door and then it starts to write itself. I mean, that's, that to me is the key of all of this is just getting out of your own way. Cause like when I'm struggling to get any work done, it's cause whatever, you know, I just don't feel like working. I want some me time. I have three kids. So, you know, I can hardly take a shower more than twice a week, you know, cause everybody <laughs> needs something all the time. And so I have to come out here to the cabin for three days and write like 16 hours a day. Wow. And, uh, so the biggest hurdle for me is just getting out of my own way and like not checking my Facebook or my Instagram and not, you know, just sitting around playing records and smoking pot. You know, I got to like sit down and work. But after right. about two hours of that, even when I'm struggling, it all just it's all gone. And I got the tunnel vision and I'm inside the story. And 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 so and that's where I want to live. You know, I mean, besides with being with my kids, you know, that's where I want to be. Yeah. I, you know, I always tell my students who a lot of them procrastination is a big deal for a lot of the writers who, you know, they love to write, but they still procrastinate. And I always remind them like, look, I write every day, but I am never in the mood to write the moment I write. Like it's, I'm never in the mood, like at that moment, at that moment, but I find the mood, the mood finds me, my attention descends to the level of what I'm writing about. And that's when the inspiration I actually think does come, but I'm never there to start. So you were saying it's weird to talk about this book because you've written all this stuff since then. So you've kind of forgotten about it in a way, right? Because your mind has been that that part of your mind is now occupied with other stories. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. I mean, I remember my motivation more. I remember my, uh, you know, sort of the conceit of the novel, how I conceived it and what I was trying to achieve and things like that. But like as far as some of the details of the lives of the characters, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I've been, I've been living with some other characters in the interim, but I, I'm sure it'll come back to me. Yeah. How do, when you talk to people about it, what, what's the conversation usually like? Uh, what, when you get out there and you're going to mix... I, I mean, this is my third interview. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out how to talk about this book because, you know, uh, you know, the book, so it's, you know, it's a hard book to talk about without spoilers. Yes. So <laughs> what I decided to do is I just got to say it. Okay. It's an unreliable narrative. There we go. You know what I mean? It's right. fun for the person to find out that it's an unreliable narrative on their own. That takes away part of the thrill, maybe. I don't know. But 
I, there's no way to talk about the book otherwise, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's the first thing I'm, I'm just dispensing. It's hard to talk about without spoilers. Yeah. What, when you do talk, let me ask, do you, do you like talking about your books? I mean, do you, I mean, we're sort of just talking about you a little bit, but like when you get out there with the public, do you enjoy that part of it or do you find it kind of weird? And how do you feel about it? I, I, I like it uh, most of the time, you know, it kind of depends on my mood. The thing is, is that, you know, I'm not writing in a vacuum. I mean, I've always looked at, I write books to connect, you know, and for 20 yeah. years, I wasn't connected with anybody, you know, my <laughs> mom wasn't the first ones. And so, I mean, my job is not to, uh, to edify the reader or foist my worldview upon them or anything. My, 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 my MO is to connect with them, you know, maybe subtly persuade them more in matters of the heart than of ideology, but sure. I look at it as a dance between the reader and the writer where the reader's doing everything I'm doing backwards and heels. Right. And I could, tr I, I could try until I'm blue in the face to create effects, but unless they're working on the reader, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? I, I can't. So, you know, to me, I, when I was young writing unpublished novels, I think there was a tendency towards the authorial. This is about me and what I think and the story I want to tell and me, 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 uh, you know, putting my worldview on the page. Now, I, 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 more and more, I view it more as this dance between with the reader because, you know, that's the best tool I have in my belt is the reader because, you know, on, on a baseline level, a story is about purely about information and how you're going to dispense that information. You could tell the same story a hundred different ways. It's how are you going to dispense that, that information and, and and I think the most effective way to do it is to do that in a way that you're actively involving the reader, undermining readers' expectations, earning the reader's trust, making promises to the reader, and and having the reader, you know, navigate the thing with you. And because then, you know, that's the greatest tool. It really is because to undermine, we we know what we like as readers. We like to be surprised. We like those relevatory moments as readers where we're making connections and going, ah, oh wow, I see what's going on here. But then, you know. Now that I've got them, now that I've got their trust, now that I I think they, they think I know what's going on, I can just turn the screw again and undermine their expectation again, you know? And it just levels. You can just keep doing that. But in order to do that, you have to, the reader has to implicitly trust you. And the reader has to be willing to do that dance and let you lead it. And, and so, like, I mean, when I think of any kind of bad writing, it all has that in common. I mean, whether whether the writer is browbeating me or whether the writer is being obscure or however the writer is being, however, whatever is making it bad. It always has that one thing in common. It's like, it's not considering the reader enough. It's too authorial. It's, it's right. There's somebody at the other end that's got to process all this. You know what I mean? Yeah. Otherwise, you know, what are you doing here? Just go and go, you know, go, go over by yourself with some lotion or whatever. I mean, <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, it's kind of a weird thing because we have to consider the reader. I totally agree. I'll, I'll tell my students, like, remember, because a lot of times my students are writing memoiry type stuff. And I'll say, remember, they don't know anything about your life. So you you know it all, but you've got to remember that they didn't go to school in Providence. So you have to walk them through what all that was like. And so you have to consider, or I would say, if you're going to write about having a twin, imagine a reader who's never had a twin. How would you help them understand what it is to have a twin? But at the same time, I found where I became most disabled as a writer was when I thought about the reader in terms of what they might like or not like, whether they would approve. Oh, of, yeah. No, no, right? no. Yeah, that's not what I'm talking about. No, I know you're not. No, I know you're not. I'm but there's a distinction about, there, right? I'm managing the information. So like, but what you're saying is, is like, they don't people you got to understand you you know everything about these characters, you know, all this off the page stuff. It's really easy to make assumptions 
that the reader knows these right. things that you know intuitively pretty because you've given it so much thought. And so you have right. to really mind yourself and really be aware of which information you've given them because you, you carry all this baggage with you that you know about the characters off the page. The reader has none of that. So in order to effectively tell the story, you have to really be able to track what the reader's thinking. And the reader to me is just me on the other side. It's not, you know, I'm not picturing the 35, the dead female demographic right. which is basically who reads fiction. Right. I'm thinking about just what I like as a reader. And like, you know, I know this about the story on this end of the equation, but what am, what what do I not know? What do I know on this side of the equation? And and so, you know, that's a lesson I learned writing This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance, which is a book that just jumps around crazily in time uh, to many readers, what seems randomly, but is in fact not random at all. And, and, and I made that revelation when I turned in the first draft of the book and my agent, my editor were just, just stonely silent. They just didn't oh, no. like it. No. <laughs> and, and I realized what the problem was, was that, you know, I like to frustrate linear narratives. You know, I use a lot of bifurcated timelines or yeah. timelines that jump yeah. around and toggle around. And here I was writing a book that was essentially about memory and recollection processes that have nothing to do with linearity. We don't think no, about our lives no, and, no. and I was three, then I was four. I mean, I jump around. Right. So what I did is I all the same information of that book. I reinvented it in two months after that phone conversation. Really? And I, I took all the same information. See, okay, so the first draft is, you know, it's linear. And you got this 80-year-old woman in an empty house. She's a widow. And, you know, she's walking around looking at her husband's slippers in the foyer. And then she's making tea and sipping the tea, looking out the window. And the steam's curling over her nose. Right. And, you know, it was stultifying, right? And then occasionally she'd think about something that happened in 1955, but she's still standing there at the window with the steam curling up of her nose. And I thought, you know, I've got all this information about Harriet's life and, and it's just how I'm arranging it. So then I came up with the conceit of this is your life second narrative, which is like an idealized Harriet. It's like an alternative Harriet holding like, like a kind of like a, a, an ego or a super, you know, holding Harriet to task, talking directly to Harriet. Talking right. in a in a second person narrative about the decisions Harriet's made in her life, but every time I flip around in her narrative and I go from the moment of her birth to the moment of her death, it's triggered by something that's happening in the four story along this seven seven day Alaskan cruise with her daughter. Like right. all that information was in the book in the first draft, and my editor and agent were just like, you know, and, they were <laughs> and, then, and then when I turned it back in two months later. Having made that realization that look, I need to undermine expectations. I need to, I need to structure and present this story in a way that's exciting for the reader and, and, and more puzzle-like. They loved it immediately. They were both not a we love it now. I mean, they went from like, oh my God, what are we gonna do? We got 90,000 words of what here, to they loved it. And that only took two months because I made that, you know, I made that recognition. That was that was when I really, really started to think about it in terms of the reader, like very very directly like okay i know this they don't know that how can i tease that out how can i how can i get to the reader how can i get the reader to subtly expect this first how can i earn this trust what promises can i make them at the beginning of the book and so i mean part of that's about being an entertainer but part of that is also just really engaging the reader in an active way so that the book is memorable and so that it really does affect them and so that if, if i do want to sort of subtly uh impose my worldview on them or try to you know soften their hardened heart i've earned their trust and i've presented it in a way that makes them feel like they did it themselves you know yeah. what i mean oh absolutely 
Absolutely. I, you want them to make, it's a funny thing. I have a, a client I work with who's a very successful comedian, stand-up comedian who's writing some stuff now. And, and we were talking about comedy a lot. And the moment of humor is always, the, the laugh to me is when the audience finishes the joke. The, the comedian leaves something out and it's what the audience, the connection they make that is when the laughter occurs. If the, you can't explain a joke. It isn't funny. And I think fiction is the same way. Yeah. Essentially well, telling you a joke. you can't explain a joke, actually. Well, you can, but it won't be funny. You're, you explain- I, use joke, I, use it, I use it all the time. Well, I mean, I, you can explain the theory of a joke and the delivery of a joke. You don't have, If you have to explain the actual content of the it joke, won't be well, funny. it's not going to be funny. Exactly. But what I'm saying is about that undermining, it's like writing a great ending. A punchline is like a great ending. Exactly. It surprises but that upon a, a a moment's notice, it's like, of course, it's inevitable. It's so true. And That's yet right. I didn't see it coming. That's, That's what right. extending does. That's what a punchline does. That's what a joke does, is, is undermines the expectation of the listener and makes them recognize truth instantly, but from a perspective they weren't, you know, they, yep. they just weren't, they weren't waiting for. Aren't you in a way, aren't all storytellers magicians in a little bit? Because we can't, we have to, we have to kind of distract the reader so we can give them the information that they need without letting them know how the story is going to end. But we have to give them all the information, but keep them a little distracted. I was talking to some genre writers who are often saddled with it, where the audience knows how it's going to end. They really know from when they pick up the book, essentially how it's going to end, but they still have to kind of hypnotize the reader a little bit into thinking it won't end the way they know it's going to end in the romance or the fantasy or whatever. But it's true of the kind of a literary fiction too. Aren't you always just kind of saying, look here at this hand when the, the information is being given here? Is that a fair description? Well, if you're doing your job right, you're going to have a lot of red herrings. You know what I yeah. mean? I mean, red herrings are important. Mystery writers understand this implicitly. Yeah. A lot of literary fiction writers tend to not understand that. And so <laughs> you have a lot of exposition, a lot of informational dump, yeah. you have a lot of quiet scenes that are sort of maybe not driving the larger narrative. Maybe they're really good scenes. Maybe the writing is really good. But yeah, I mean, it's always about managing expectations. I, I mean, I pride myself on not people never knowing where the ending is going to be. I understand that if you're writing in a in a in a genre that's so full of tropes, like a mystery, you know what I mean? I mean, there's just been so many written that there are tropes and or, you know, or the noir, for instance. I mean, you know, fate's going to win. I mean, or it's not a noir. You know, you know <laughs> that the protagonist is hopelessly trapped by right. the outside forces. So, you know, it's not going to end happily. Right. But. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I, it, all of that is about, yeah, magician, sure. I think more of a tactician in a way. I mean, oh, I think of it almost more surgical, but it doesn't, it can't, it can't read with that surgical precision. You know what I mean? Nope. It's got to be like a glacier where all the work is invisible. But like, yeah. I mean, like, you know, that's the thing about reverse engineering is so important. You know what I mean? That's why, that's why I, I, you know, I'm always defending Dickens because everyone's like, oh, well, his universe is so small. He, he, you know, happenstance and coincidence. And I'm like, well, this guy never got to reverse engineer anything he ever wrote. He's writing like 10,000 words a week, serializing it. It doesn't matter how much out he's doing. He doesn't get the chance. I mean, reverse engineering is where I make so much of the magic happen. Like, you know, in small world, yeah. After I finished that book, it's got like, what, 20 narratives in it or whatever. It's a, almost 200,000 words long. At the end of it, when I knew the material really well, I was able to add that little blue locket. And it it's a seamless run through the whole novel. It took me one day to add that. 
Wow. And it runs through the whole That's what you can do with reverse engineering once you know what you're doing. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's why I look at it as more of a tactician or a, I mean, there's just, again, it comes down to points of information. Like, so that's why I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm really kind of OCD about like when I make a discovery myself on the page during a story, I can't just like make a note in the margin and move on because that's going to change the decisions I make going forward. So it may have changed the decisions I made getting here. So I have to go back to the beginning. Say, I'm Really? Like, oh, you go back right away. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, say okay. I'm like 30,000 words into the book that's going to ultimately be like 90, 100,000 words. I, once I made that revelation, I got to go back to the beginning and reverse engineer it in right. to get me back to this point because that point may be different. You're going to miss opportunities otherwise. This right. is the power of reverse. This is what they mean by like the real writing happens in rewriting. Right. You know what I mean? Is that you sometimes you don't even know really what the book is until a draft. I'm getting better at that. You know, that's one thing with experience you get better at. But like early novels, you kind of get to the end and you're like, okay, I wrote it. What's it about? You know yeah. what I mean? And then you got to go back and do some narrative archaeology. Yeah, I always tell my students, like, please, you have to get to the end of at least one draft to have any sense what you're like. You really have to get to the end to have a sense of what you've actually written. You just won't. But and like I said, if you've written 20 novels, maybe you get a sense, you can start feeling it through. But there is something about where the thing actually ends, because that's where you're going. That's where you're leaving people. And yeah, you're probably going to rewrite that ending a few times, but you have a sense you've got to have reached the actual ending to know. And if you think you know what the ending yeah. is, I don't, you know, you've got to, it should feel, it should always feel like discovery. Even, I don't know, I think it should feel like discovery throughout. Even if you're reverse engineering, there should be a level of discovery happening even in that. Does that feel true to you? Or it's do you feel like you're going to rewrite the ending? You got to go back and rewrite the beginning. Yeah, this is why I tell people, you know, they get in workshops and they want to find an agent and stuff and they just rework this first chapter over and over and over. And I'm like, look, if you're doing your job right, the last thing you're going to do is rewrite that first chapter after you figure out where you're going. Exactly. The only yeah. thing you should worry about in the first draft of your first chapter of a novel is keeping yourself accountable. What promises am I going to make to the reader? And then you are beholden to those promises. To the reader, you have to either figure out to uh, that you're going to lie to the reader in a, in a way that you can get away with, or that you're going to make good on those promises. You have to do that. That's the only thing you really have to concentrate. People just work the sentences over right. and that first scene over. It's like until you get to, until you've hit that final note, you'll just be missing an opportunity because then you can build that ending, right? It's like the joke. You can, yeah. if you really want the big surprise payoff, oh, that's so true. You have to lead it off right. It's all perfectly engineered. So, like the first thing, the last thing you're going to do, even after you write the end, is you should go back and rewrite that first chapter. But so many people get caught up, you know, just like working the hell, I guess, months and months and months. And I get the impulse, but like, don't. You got to move through the narrative, make your promises, and then start trying to fulfill them and get as far as you can until you, like I say, I, I suggest if you figure out something big, go back and reverse engineer it in. Right. First. I like this. I like this, John. This, this, I, this is, uh, I've talked to you a bunch of times uh, and we've talked to when we haven't been on mic and recorded. And it's the first time I've heard you talk about this promises thing. And I, and really of all the writers I've talked to, you're the first one who's really honed in on that. And I quite like it. I think it's really true that you make a, and sometimes you make a promise. And as a reader, I'll go, yeah, I see the promise you're making. I'm not interested. That's not a promise. I'm willing. I'm interested in seeing you fulfill. But at least you be honest and say, "This is what we're going to do. Here's what we're about to do." And being really, and I think that if you're really clear about that, the sentences should begin to like all the rewriting 
the promise should guide the language anyway, should guide the sentences, should guide the tone of it, if you understand what the promise you're trying to make. Yeah? Yeah, I don't even think in terms of sentence and I mean, tone, yeah, but the words now are just like, they're just come out because I've done it so much that you yeah. can, I'm not sitting there hmm, yeah. looking for the just, you know, I mean, at some point I clean that stuff up. But you, what you just said about the the promise is, is I mean, you're asking them like a 300, 400, 500 page commitment, you know, I yeah. mean, it's a relationship, you know, I keep framing the relationship or a dance. So yeah, you're going to make promises so that they know what they're getting into. Um, how you fulfill those promises, whether you fulfill those promises, that's a different story. There's a hundred thousand ways to handle that, but you have to make the promises. You yeah. have to you have to give the, the reader a sense of the conceit of the novel, like, okay, I know how hard this person is swinging, or I know you can't just have a quiet first scene. You know, I think a lot of people conceive this first scene is okay, all I have to accomplish here is introduce the character and the setting. That's not enough, especially not in 2023. You need to make promises then. You know what I mean? It used to be, I mean, Dostoevsky had 140 pages of slow burn before he really started to turn the screw. Yeah. But, you know, that was a that was 100 years ago. Yeah. You know, now, I mean, storytelling has changed. The way we process stories has changed. And now, I mean, you yes, you have to introduce the characters. Yes, yes, you have to introduce the scene, but almost more importantly, you have to make these promises to the reader and you have to um, really set the stage for, you know, it's like you're, you're, you're asking the reader to buckle in. It's going to be a roller coaster and you're giving them an idea. You're giving them a little glimpse into that future. Like, I don't know how he's going to get me there, but about 200 yards away, I see this freaking double loop-de-loop and -loop yes. a corkscrew that's going to, you know what I mean? you yeah. got to get some some sense of the expectation that's going to be there. And I think that's what so many, when a book's just sitting there at the beginning, that's what it's missing. Yeah. Usually. Yeah. Uh, this has been a good conversation, John. Good conversation as it always is with you. Such an interesting guy. Like people, it's a great book. It's a fun book. It's a readable book. It's an interesting book. I like it. I like it. Not that you need my, you don't need my help to sell this thing. But I'm trying to sell some, move some paper for Whatever you, John. Whatever I get, buddy, one copy at a time, man. <laughs> oh, you've done some good work. All right, so this is book number eight. He's got three more in the works. He's got a screenplay. I hope that gets made. That would be a lot of fun. Uh, I but... got another one. Harriet's, at, uh, Harriet's at, uh, in development at Focus. All right. And then there's the, I don't, screenplay's doing nothing. Uh, and then there's a lawn boy deck circulating for a series, so we'll see. All right, you know what? There's a there's so many platforms where movies and shows can get made. I hope hope you find one. I think that would be awesome. I know you've had some luck in that in the past, and I hope you do so again. But in the meantime, you're just going to keep working, keep chopping the wood, keep oh, telling yeah. the stories. But I am not quite done with you, my friend. I have one more question. Uh, I know I've asked this before, but I don't care. I bet the answer's changed. Uh, I want you to think about all the writing you've done. You've done a lot of it, millions of words probably, at this point in your life. If that writing has taught you anything about life, about being a human being, it's taught you what? Oh, I mean, the whole reason I do this, the reason I can write eight novels and not get published was because I write to be a more expansive person. 
This is the whole, this is my purpose for writing. It is an exercise in empathy for me. I mean, I, I'm, 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 I'm biomanic. You know what I mean? I'd be fucking IV drug user yelling at parking meters if it weren't for writing. So the answer to that is easy for me. It's, I write to be, and this is why I write beyond the purview of my uh, lived experience so often. You know, I write from, you know, whatever, whether it's gender, generational, race, class, culture. I mean, I'm always trying to write beyond my purview so that I can learn and, and accrue experience that feels real, you know, like, I mean, I feel like I crossed the uh, Olympic mountains in 1889 with the press expedition in the cruelest winter in the history of Washington. And the truth is I never got out of my pajamas, dude. I had a warm <laughs> cup of coffee right there, but like that experience feels real and it feels lived. And so to walk a mile and somebody else's shoes. That's my whole purpose. So that's what I, I learned how to be a better boyfriend. I learned how to be a better, I mean, better husband. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, honey. Uh, better husband, better dad, better friend. You know what I mean? It's there for a reason. It is there to become a better person. Ah, I agree. 100%, John, 100%. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Sure, Bill. Thanks for having me, buddy. Talk soon. Yeah, empathy, expansion, teaches us who we are. Yeah, John's a one of a kind. Yes, he is. Listen, I want to thank you all. Thank you all for listening. Thank my producer, RJ Jeffries. Thank you, my friend. And so, you know, this is why you do it. You, you know, discover, discover, expand as a person. That moment, that moment when you're writing and you don't know what's coming next, you don't know what's coming next and you feel... Little, that's when the expansion happens. That's it. That's that moment when the new thing is coming. Ooh, enjoy it. Enjoy it. Embrace it. And when you're not writing, even when you're not writing, go find something you love to do and do it. <laughs>